episode 33. Your tomatoes are turning red, and I keep watering the same bunny. Tiger lilies are go. H-H-H. I'm writing on a fresh pad with a new pen. Greetings and welcome into the Patuxet General. It was hazy, hot, and humid this week in Old Patuxet. The daytime streets were quiet as we took to our indoor or outdoor cooling plans. Be it movies, shopping, swimming, or cuddled up with a fan and an ice pack. So how about a quick and refreshing boilermaker? Also, it's a great time for grilling. I have a fun method for a vegetable prep for the grill that I'd like to share. But first, a shout-out to our Patreon subscribers. These master detectives supply all the evidence that is needed to solve the Holmesescian mystery that is the Patuxet General. Without them, we would be nearly lost like Watson in the death of Sherlock Holmes. If you would like to join these historic sleuths, just follow the links in the show notes to our Patreon page and a donate to the podcast. So thank you. But first, let's talk about Boilermakers. Drink Episode 33, The Boilermaker. No matter if you call it a heron deck or a little headbutt in Dutch, or a U-boot or a Chicago handshake or an Irish car bomb, they are all boilermakers or a shot in a beer. All around the world, I've come across this drink, usually in just-after-work sort of atmosphere. Children of the 70s went into bars with their parents and drank Shirley Temples, ate beer nuts, and played pinball. The bar stools were full of tired, dirty guys who were just knocking back a couple before going home for supper. Mostly I remember them as an older kid, but there were a few memories of walking down the street in Federal Hill with my mom while passing neighborhood bars with folks sitting with a beer and a shot. I was a toddler at the time, but Federal Hill was my first home, and both parents agreed that the house was haunted. My parents, like most young folks, had modest means. Federal Hill was full of Victorian houses, with lovely custom bits like pocket doors that opened up to show large double parlors. My dad had hung a swing in that space. At night, my mother often heard me crying, only to rush in and find me fast asleep, but more importantly, the rocking chair in my room rocking back and forth. She told my dad, who said it must be passing trucks or something. Mom explained that she had also seen a woman standing over my crib who looked at her when she walked in the room and disappeared. Dad found that hard to believe until he went to grab me one night and saw the rocking chair. He stopped it with his hand, and then when he let it go, it started rocking again. There was no vibration in the house, and for the first time, he believed. Now, about that drink. If you saw a Boilermaker in Rhode Island at that time, most of the time you saw a short glass of Narragansett beer and a shot of whiskey. I do a pint of Bass Ale and a shot of good local vodka. But any combo can be fun, like a Corona and a shot of tequila, or a chocolate stout and a shot of Frangelico. How about a Guinness and a shot of Telemore Dew? Try this drink combo your way and enjoy. 
Mr. Grillface. In these hot days, grilling can be a daily operation. Sometimes it gets a little repetitive. I would wash, cut, set out on platters the vegetables, then dress them with olive oil, salt, and black pepper. One day I realized that it looked kind of like a face. This sent me down a path, thinking, hmm, which veggies look more like lips or eyelids? Obviously, photos happened, and even though it was years ago, I was intrigued enough to do some checking into a 15th century artist, Giuseppe Arcambaldo not only worked on the stained glass of St. Catherine in the Cathedral of Milan, but he also did the Tree of Life fresco with Giuseppe Medea in the Cathedral of Monza. But he is most famous for his paintings of figures made from nature's shapes, the most famous of the Four Seasons. You can view the entire collection at GiuseppeArcambaldo.org. And if you'd like to see one in person... The closest to Rhode Island is the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford, Connecticut. They own summer, which is a banquet for the eyes. So make faces with your vegetables your way for grilling fun and enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball and pinball and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 5, Section 5. Marinus Bickwell Willett had no hope that any of his tale would be believed except by certain sympathetic friends. Hence, he made no attempt to tell it beyond his most intimate circle. Only a few outsiders ever heard it repeated, and of those the majority laugh and remark that the doctor is surely getting old. He has been advised to take a long vacation and to shun future cases dealing with mental disturbance. But Mr. Ward knows that the veteran physician speaks only the horrible truth. Did he not he himself see the noisome aperture in the bungalow cellar? Did not Willette send him home, overcome and ill at eleven o'clock that portentous morning? Did he not telephone the doctor in vain that evening and again the next day? And had he not driven to the bungalow itself on the following noon, finding his friend unconscious but unharmed on one of the beds upstairs? Did he not telephone the doctor in vain that evening and again the next day? And had he not driven to the bungalow itself on the following noon, finding his friend unconscious but unharmed on one of the beds upstairs? Willette had been breathing stronously and opened his eyes slowly when Mr. Ward gave him some brandy fetched from the car. Then he shuddered and screamed, crying out, That beard! Those eyes! God, who are you? A very strange thing to say to a trim, blue-eyed, clean-shaven gentleman whom he had known from the latter's boyhood. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? 
Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. In the bright noon sunlight, the bungalow was unchanged since the previous morning. Willette's clothing bore no disarrangement beyond certain smudges and worn places at the knees, and only a faint acrid odor reminded Mr. Ward of what he had smelt on his son that day when he was taken to the hospital. The doctor's flashlight was missing, but his valise was safely there, and empty as when he brought it. Before indulging in any explanations, and obviously with some great moral effort, Willette staggered dizzily down to the cellar and tried the fateful platform before the tubs. It was unyielding. Crossing to where he had left his yet unused tool satchel the day before, he obtained a chisel and began to pry up the stubborn planks one by one. Underneath the smooth concrete was still visible, but of any opening or perforation there was no longer a trace. Nothing yawned this time to sicken the mystified father who had followed the doctor downstairs. Only smooth concrete underneath the planks. No noisome well. No world of subterranean horrors. No secret library. No Kerwin papers. No nightmare pits of stenching and howling. No laboratory or shelves or chiseled formulae. Dr. Willette turned pale and clutched at the younger man. Yesterday, he asked softly, Did you see it here? And smell it? And when Mr. Ward, himself transfixed with dread and wonder, found strength to nod an affirmative, the physician gave a sound, half a sigh and half a gasp, and nodded in turn. And I will tell you, he said. So for an hour, in the sunniest room that they could find upstairs, the physician whispered his frightful tale to the wondering father. There was nothing to relate beyond the looming up of that form when the greenish-black vapor of the kylix parted, and Willette was too tired to ask himself what had really occurred. There were futile, bewildered head-shakings from both men, and once Mr. Ward ventured a hushed suggestion. Do you suppose it would be any use to dig? The doctor was silent. For what seemed hardly fitting for any human brain to answer when powers of the unknown spheres had so vitally encroached on this side of the great abyss. Again, Mr. Ward asked, but where did it go? It brought you here, you know, and it sealed up the hole somehow. And Willette let silence answer for him. But after all, this is not the final phase of the matter. Reaching for his handkerchief before rising to leave, Dr. Willette's fingers closed upon a piece of paper in his pocket which had not been there before, and which was companioned by candles and matches he had seized in the vanished vault. It was a common sheet, torn obviously from the cheap pad in that fabulous room of horror somewhere underground, and the writing upon it was that of an ordinary lead pencil. Doubtless, the one that had lain beside the pad was folded very carelessly, and beyond the faint acrid scent of the cryptic chamber bore no print or mark of any world but this. 
But the text itself did indeed reek with wonder, for here was no script of any wholesome age, but the labored strokes of medieval darkness, scarcely legible to the layman who now strained over it, yet having combinations of symbols which seemed vaguely familiar. The briefly scrawled message was this, and in mystery lent purpose to the shaken pair, who forthwith walked steadily out to the ward car and gave orders to be driven first to a quiet dining place and then to the John Hay Library on the Hill. At the library was easy to find good manuals of paleography, and over these the men puzzled till the lights of evening shone from the great chandelier. In the end, they found what they needed— the letters were indeed no fantastic invention, but the normal script of a very dark period. They were the pointed Saxon minuscules of the 8th and 9th century AD, and brought with them memories of an uncouth time, when under fresh Christian veneer ancient faiths and ancient rites stirred stealthily. And the pale moon of Britain looked sometimes on strange deeds in the Roman ruins of Caerlorn and Hexham, and by the towers along Hadrian's crumbling wall. The words were in such Latin as a barbarous age might remember, and may be roughly translated, Kerwin must be killed, the body must be dissolved in aqua fortis, nor must anything be retained, keep silence as best you are able. Willette and Mr. Ward were mute and baffled. They had met the unknown and found that they lacked emotions to respond to it as vaguely believe they ought. With Willette especially, the capacity for receiving fresh impressions of awe was well-nigh exhausted, and both men sat still and helpless till the closing of the library forced them to leave. Then they drove listlessly to the Ward mansion on Prospect Street and talked to no purpose into the night. The doctor rested toward morning but did not go home, and he was still there Sunday noon when a telephone message came from the detectives who had been assigned to look up Dr. Allen. Mr. Ward, who was pacing nervously about in his dressing gown, answered the call in person and told the men to come up early the next day when he heard their report was almost ready. Both Willette and he were glad that this phase of the matter was taking form, for whatever the origin of the strange, minuscule message, it seemed certain that the Kerwin, who must be destroyed, could be no other than the bearded and spectacled stranger. Charles had feared this man, and had said in a frantic note that he must be killed and dissolved in acid. Alan, moreover, had been receiving letters from the strange wizards in Europe under the name Kerwin, and palpably regarded himself as an avatar as the bygone necromancer. And now, from a fresh and unknown source, had come a message saying that Kerwin must be killed and dissolved in acid. The linkage was too unmistakable to be factuous. And besides, was it not Alan planning to murder young Ward upon the advice of the creature called Hutchinson? Of course, the letter that they had seen had never reached the bearded stranger, but from its text, they could see that Alan had already formed plans in dealing with the youth if he grew too squeamish. Without doubt, Alan must be apprehended, and even if the most drastic directions were not carried out, he must be placed where he could not inflict harm upon Charles Ward. That afternoon, hoping against hope to exact a gleam of information, 
in the innermost mysteries from the only one available capable of giving it, the father and doctor went down to the bay and called on young Charles at the hospital. Simply and gravely, Willette told him all he had found, and notice how pale he turned at each description, made certain the truth of the discovery. The physician employed as much dramatic effect as he could, and watched for a wincing on Charles' part when he approached the matter of the covered pits and the nameless hybrids within, but Ward did not wince. Willette paused, and his voice grew more indignant as he spoke of how the things were starving. He taxed the youth with shocking inhumanity and shivered when only a sardonic laugh came in reply. For Charles, having dropped the useless pretense that the crypt did not exist, seemed to see the ghastly jest in this affair and chuckled hoarsely at something which amused him. Then he answered, in accents doubly terrible because of the cracked voice he used, Damn them! They do eat, but they don't need to! That's the rare part. A month you say without food, Lord, sir, you be modest, you know? That was a joke on all poor Whipple with all his virtuous bluster. Kill everything off, would he? Well, damn, he was half deaf with the noise from outside and never saw or heard like the wells. He never dreamed they were there at all. Devil take you, those cursed things have been howling down there ever since Kerwin was done for a hundred and fifty years gone. But no more than this could Roulette get from the youth. Horrified, yet somehow convinced against his will, he went on with the tale as in the hope that some incident might startle his auditor out of the mad composure he had maintained. Looking at the youth's face, the doctor could not but feel a kind of terror at the changes which the recent months had wrought. Truly, the boy had drawn down nameless horrors from the skies. When the room with the formula and the greenish dust was mentioned, Charles showed the first sign of animation. A quizzical look overspread his face as he heard what Willette had read on the pad, and he ventured the mild statement that those notes were old ones of no possible significance to anyone not deeply initiated in the history of magic. But, he added... Had you but known the words to bring up what I had put in the cup, you would not be here to tell me this. Twas the number 118, and I conceive that you have shook it up without looking what was in the other room. Twas never raised by me, but I meant to have it up that day you came to invite me hither. Then, Willette told of the formula he had spoken and of the greenish-black smoke which had arisen. And as he did so, he saw true fear dawn for the first time on Charles Ward's face. It came, and you be here alive. It came, and you be here alive. As Ward croaked the words, his voice seemed almost to burst free of its tremors and sink to cavernous abysses of uncanny resonance. Willette, gifted with a flash of inspiration, believed he saw the situation and wove into his reply a caution from the letter he remembered. Number 118, you say? But don't forget the stones are all changed now in nine grounds out of ten. You will never be sure till you question. And then, without warning, he drew forth the minuscule message and flashed it before the patient's eyes. 
He could have wished no stronger result for Charles Ward fainted forthwith. All this conversation, of course, had been conducted with the greatest secrecy, lest the resident alienists accuse the father and the physician of encouraging a madman in his delusions. Unaided, too, Dr. Willette and Mr. Ward picked up the stricken youth and placed him on the couch. In reviving, the patient mumbled many times of some word, which he must get to Orne and Hutchinson at once. So when his consciousness seemed fully back, the doctor told him that of those strange creatures, at least one was his bitter enemy, and had given Dr. Allen advice for his assassination. This revelation produced no visible effect, and before it was made, the visitors could see that their hosts already had the look of a hunted man. After that, he would converse no more. So Willette and Father departed presently, leaving behind a caution against the bearded Alan, to which the youth only replied that individual was very safely taken care of and could do no one harm even if he wished. This was said with an almost evil chuckle, very painful to hear. They did not worry about any communications Charles might indict to that monstrous pair in Europe, since they knew that the hospital authorities seized all outgoing mail for censorship and would pass no wild or outer-looking missive. There is, however, a curious sequel to the matter of Orne and Hutchinson, if such indeed the exiled wizards were, moved by some vague presentment amidst the horrors of that period. Willette arranged for an international press-cutting bureau for accounts of notable current crimes and accidents in Prague and in eastern Transylvania. And after six months, believed that he had found two very significant things among the malfurous items he received and had translated. One was a total wrecking of a house by night in the oldest quarter of Prague and the disappearance of an evil old man named Josef Nadek who had dwelt in it alone ever since anyone could remember. The other was a titan explosion in the Transylvanian mountains east of Rakus, and the utter extirpation with all of its inmates of the ill-regarded castle Ferenzi, whose masters, spoken so badly by the peasants and the soldiery alike, that he would shortly have been summoned to Bucharest for serious questioning, had this incident not cut off his career already so long as to antedate all common memory. Willette maintains that the hand which wrote those minuscules was able to wield stronger weapons as well, and that while Kerwin was left for him to dispose of, the writer felt able to find and deal with Orne and Hutchinson himself. Of what their fate may have been, the doctor strives seditiously not to think. Thank you again for joining us today at the PG. If you'd like more information about our pop-up general store, or to book us for an event, or to share a ghost story, yes, please! Our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. Stay cool, everybody, and I can't wait to meet you right back here next time at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxent.